Hopefully when you came in this morning, you were able to pick up a worship guide. It looks like this. And on the back side of the worship guide is a place where you can take notes um, throughout the sermon if you'd like to do that. Um, you can see that we're in the middle of a series in the book of Acts. We're going to be finishing that up really soon in January. We're going, to take a, we're going to take a break from it in November and December, and then in January we'll finish it up. At the end of January, we're going to jump to the Old Testament in the book of Micah. But for now, we're in the book of Acts, and uh, you can see where we'll be next week uh, at the bottom, and you can use this to take notes as we go through. Hopefully, you got a Bible with you. If you don't, that's okay, because we've got Bibles for you. There should be a Bible near you, underneath the seat, around you, those kinds of things. It's a black uh, hard copy of God's Word. If you need a copy of the Bible or know someone who does, feel free to take that with you. That'll be our gift to you. Uh, we'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word in your hands. Um, one thing I do want to mention real quick is uh, we are experiencing some really exciting times here at Living Hope, and you may be wondering, what would it be like to be a member of this church family? And if that's you, we're inviting you to come participate in a new member class. It's going to be happening next Sunday at 445. Uh, there'll be some snacks as well as child care available. If you could sign up on the Hope or fill out a card on uh, a place on the connection card and drop that in the plate, then that would help us get you signed up to be a part of that class. All right, um, last week we were looking at the life of the Apostle Paul, and we see that Paul was under arrest, and there was a desire for many people to have him killed, and there was an oath of 40 plus guys that were going to make that possible, they were going to kill Paul, but uh, the ambush thankfully is stopped, and Paul is taken to Caesarea, and he's escorted there by the Roman army, and he ends up in Caesarea where the governor of Judea was, and his name is Felix. And Felix says, I will hear this case when your accusers get here. So that's kind of where we left off last week. You can always go back and watch our sermons online to hear other uh, par portions of the text. But that's kind of where we finished up in chapter 23. This morning we're at Acts chapter 24. We're actually going to look at the whole chapter. We'll kind of walk through it a little bit at a time. Let's start by looking at Acts chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. It says, After five days, that meaning that he had been in Caesarea for five days, and after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul. And when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse Paul, saying, and then he's speaking to Felix first, and he says, since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere, we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly. So we want to pause right there. We see that five days have passed since Paul was in Caesarea, and finally his accusers show up. His accusers are Ananias, some of the elders, and a guy by the name of Tertullus. Uh, Ananias, if you were to go back and look at chapter 23, you would find out that Ananias was the high priest who was over the Sanhedrin that listened to the case, if you will, of Paul. And while Paul was talking, Paul said something that made uh, Ananias angry, and he ordered that Paul be struck in the mouth. Uh, and so this Ananias guy doesn't like Paul very, very much. And he shows up and he's got a spokesman, it says. In, in the ESV it says spokesman, his name is Tertullus. The word spokesman here is actually a, like a professional orator and, and one who comes to serve as a lawyer or attorney. So he's like, he's kind of rolling in the big guns and he's bringing Tertullus in to try to get um, Paul 
um, you know, find, find Paul guilty as he's there before Felix. The verses we just read, you can see that um, Tertullus does a little bit of trying to kind of butter up Felix, right? He's giving him some flattery in those first few verses. Just so you know, everything he said was actually a lie. Because the things he said about Felix just weren't true. Felix was not a good ruler. Felix had not done anything good for the territory. Uh, Felix was not one who brought peace. And the people were not really grateful for Felix. But, but Tertullus says all of that because he wants Felix to appreciate him so that maybe he would go along with what um, he's trying to get to take place. Um, and then he finishes by saying, hey, now, Felix, I know you're busy, but can I just have a minute? So here's the minute that he asks for from Felix. Let's look at verses 5 through 9. He begins to describe how they see Paul, and he says, For we have found this man, Paul, a plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you'll be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. So we see that Tertullus brings formal charges against Paul. And he lists them out. And we can see that in verses 5 through 9. And just in a bullet point fashion, here's what he says. He says, Paul is a plague. What he means by plague is that he's a pestilence, he's a troublemaker, he's a rebel rouser, if you will. The second thing he says is that Paul stirs up riots. The word riot there is sedition or insurrection, dissension, unrest. He's like a political agitator is what he's saying about Paul. And then he says on top of that, he's a ringleader of this Nazarene sect. Nazarene sect referring to Jesus of Nazareth. He says he's leading people to follow this Jesus of Nazareth. He's a, he's a part of a sect, and in some ways, when it says sect here, it carries with it the idea of heresy. This Paul guy is leading a group in heretical teachings. And then he says, on top of that, he has profaned or defiled the temple. He's made it ritually unclean but thank goodness we were there because we stopped him before it got worse as i read that one i was reminded of a time in my life that i was actually in israel we were in jerusalem uh not we my family but me and some classmates from seminary 30 plus years ago or no just almost 30 years ago and we uh we we did something really dumb we didn't know we were doing it but we did it and that is we would pack a lunch that's not dumb so we could eat lunch as we went along well we were in jerusalem that day and we found an outdoor cafe where we could sit down and eat our lunch if you know anything about kosher meals you'll know why what we did was not good we had turkey and cheese sandwiches so we had dairy and meat together and we were sitting in the cafe just eating our lunch a guy came out that was the owner of the restaurant or the manager, whichever the case may be, and we thought he was offended that we were there because we were taking up precious seats as somebody that's a paying customer could use. And we're like, oh, sorry about that. We're going to leave. But we had a guy with us that was a translator, and he knew what was being said. And what was going on was he was not offended we were sitting there. He was angry that we were eating something that was not kosher because you don't mix dairy with meat. And in essence, he would have had to shut down his restaurant for the day so that he could clean it again because we we had not shown respect and we had defiled his restaurant. So as I read this about Paul, Paul did not eat a sandwich at the temple, but he's being accused of defiling the temple. And then Tertullus goes on and says, hey, after you examine him, you're going to see that everything we said about Paul 
is correct. And the reality is, it's not correct, but he says they're going to. So if you were to summarize the charge, here it is. Paul is disturbing the peace. He's a member of a seditious, uh, dangerous sect, and he must be stopped. Look at verse 9. Verse 9, this guy had what I would love to have. Sometimes I have it on Sunday mornings and sometimes I don't. He had his own amen corner. And every time he made a point, the Jews said, amen, brother. And they are affirming everything. So if you feel the need to amen occasionally, you can do that if you'd like to. All right, there we go. All right, so he had his amen corner as these people are attacking Paul. Let's keep reading. Verse 10, verse 10 through 23. And when the governor Felix had nodded to Paul to speak, Paul replied. And here's Paul's reply. Felix, knowing that for many years, probably about five years at this point, you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is no more than, uh, not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me. But this I confess to you. That according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and had written in the prophets, having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now, after several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings. While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple without any crowd or tumult. But some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and to make an, an accusation, should they have anything against me? Or else, let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council, other than this one thing that I cried out while standing before them. It is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day. But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off, saying, When Lysias, the tribune, comes down, I will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody, but have some liberty, and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. In these verses, we see Paul stand up to make his defense. He begins by saying, I will cheerfully make my defense. I'm grateful that you are judge or leader of our area, and now I'm going to speak my defense. And here's his defense in bullet point fashion. He says, hey guys, I haven't even been here long enough to stir up problems. I've only been here for 12 days, and please remember that half of those days or longer I've been here in custody in Caesarea. Therefore, I wasn't in Jerusalem long enough to stir up trouble. Secondly, I was just worshiping in Jerusalem, not causing problems. I wasn't disputing with anyone. I'm not stirring up a crowd. And he says, they can't prove any of this because this simply is not true. And then in verses 14 and 15, he says, but instead of defending myself, I'm actually going to make a confession. He's not guilty of something, but he's making a confession, a profession, a declaration. This is where I stand. Verses 14 and 15. Here's what he says. Number one, I proudly am a part of the way. He says, I'm a part of what they call a sect. It's not a sect because we're actually doing the right things. I'm a part of the way. It's called the way because it's the way of Jesus Christ, the way that Jesus would lead. He says, I'm proud to be a part of following Jesus. 
And our group is not going against the religion of our ancestors, but rather, he says there in 14 and 15, we believe and we follow the law and the prophets, and we're simply worshiping the God of our ancestors. We are not a dangerous group at all, but rather we are worshiping God correctly. And then he finishes in verse 15 by saying, we have the hope of God, and that hope is that there is a resurrection, that the resurrection will come. So that's what he says. These are the things I stand on. These are the things I believe. And based on who he is as a person and the things that he believes, then we look at verses 16 through 18 and we see a few things about his lifestyle. And the key verse that I want us to see is in verse 16. In verse 16, he says to them, I'm in the wrong chapter, so let me look at the right one. Verse 16, he says this. I always take pains to have a clear conscience before both God and man. What he's saying is, I've done everything that I can to have a clear conscience. And in fact, the title of this sermon is Clear Conscience Before God and People. And we're going to see what that means. He says, guys, I just simply returned to Jerusalem because I've been collecting and offering uh, alms. I've been collecting some money to give to the poor. And people, the Gentiles around the world, has collected this money, so I brought it. And then when I got there, I, I took an offering. If you remember back in verse tw- uh, chapter 21, he stands in the temple with four other guys, and he brings an offering on on behalf of him and those four guys and on top of that Paul had ritually been cleansed as a part of an oath a vow and so he's saying guys I am simply not doing the things you said I didn't stir up trouble instead we see that Paul is innocent Paul is innocent of all the charges in verses 19 through 21 he references that some some Jews from Asia had made a charge and here's what the charge was some Jews in Asia said that Paul had showed up to the temple with an uncircumcised Gentile and had brought him into the temple and had brought defilement to the temple but that charge was not accurate he says the only thing I'm guilty of and that would be used loosely, like guilty in air quotes. The only thing I've been guilty of is simply believing in the hope of the resurrection. Here's the deal. Why is it a big deal that he is proclaiming the resurrection of the dead? Most of the Jews believed the resurrection of the dead is a real thing. Others didn't, but the majority of them did. So why are they so upset at him? Because whenever he preaches or talks about the resurrection of the dead, it's not in general terms, but rather it's resurrection from the dead because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, which points to the coming resurrection. So he says, I'm on trial. I'm guilty of believing that Jesus died for our sins and was raised on the third day. And that's why I'm on trial here. And then you look down in verses 22 and 23, and on my notes I said this is Felix's decision. He doesn't make a decision. He, he doesn't make a decision at all. How does he respond in verses 22 and 23? It says, Felix put them off. He put them off. He delayed. He postponed. He, he put aside. He avoided. He put them off and said, I'm not going to make a decision until the tribune comes here. Well, we don't know whether the tribune came or not, but there's no record of it in the book of Acts. So perhaps he never, ever made a judgment, as we'll see, because he stayed, Paul stayed there for two years. The reality is that he avoided making a decision. Paul ends up staying in jail. Let's pick up the rest of the verses in verses 24 through 27. A few days later, or some days later, however long that was, Felix came, and he brought his wife, Drusilla, and Drusilla was Jewish. 
He sent for Paul, and he heard him, Paul, speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And here's what Paul preached or reasoned with them about, righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment. Felix was alarmed, and he said, go away from the pres- for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At the same time, he began to bribe him. He hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for Paul often and conversed with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. And uh, desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. In verses 24 through 27, we see Paul boldly preaching about Jesus Christ. It says he spoke to them about faith in Christ Jesus. He preached the whole gospel. Look at verse 24. He preached righteousness, self-control, the coming judgment. And when Felix heard it, it said that Felix was alarmed. The word in the Greek for alarmed comes from the word phobos, or like phobia, like fear, like he's intensely afraid of what Paul has preached. I believe that Felix has conviction from God to turn to God in faith and trusting in Jesus, and yet he runs from it. Just like he didn't make a decision about what to do with Paul, he doesn't make a decision about what God is leading him to do. God's speaking to him, he's afraid of responding, and he puts off any kind of decision. He didn't repent, he didn't turn to Christ in faith. Instead, what did he do? He left Paul in prison. He left Paul in jail. In fact, it says that he left him in jail for two years. And why did he leave him in jail? Because it was easier to do that. He didn't have to make a decision. He didn't have to offend Rome by causing one of their citizens to experience some kind of imprisonment forever. And he also didn't have to offend the Jews because the Jews wanted Paul to stay in custody. And so he just left well enough alone. He was indecisive about what to do with Paul. He was indecisive what to do about God calling out to him as well. So, says that Paul stayed there for two more years. So that gives us a timeline at this point. You may be wondering, well, what year was this? You may be not wondering, but I'll tell you what year it was. Apparently, he went to Caesarea in the year 56, A.D. 56. Because here's what we know. In the year A.D. 58, Felix is taken out of his role as governor, and Festus is put into power. And it says that he was there for two years. So sometime in 55 or 56, Paul ends up in Caesarea. He stays there for two years until at least the year 58. Can you imagine if you're Paul? Paul, two years prior, had heard God say, it's okay, you're going to Rome, you're going to preach in Rome, and two years later, he's still sitting in the same jail cell in Caesarea. And yet Paul knew that God was up to some good stuff, and so Paul remained faithful by continuing to preach the gospel. Now, now we're going to get to the points that are on your outline. Here's what we're seeing. In verse 16, Paul says, I have a clear conscience before God and man, and I am encouraging all of us to be able to get to the point where we can say we have a clear conscience before God and man, but the question is, how do we go about doing that? So these are the three points on your outline. The first one says this, how do I have a clear conscience before God and man? When we have blameless character. When we have blameless character. If you look at the Greek word for clear When it says clear conscience, the word clear there carries with it the idea of blameless. 
blameless. It's interesting because I have a group of guys I'm doing a study with called the Titus 10, and we talked about this very word uh, on Wednesday morning. The word blameless here does not mean perfect. It does not mean sin-free. It does not mean without blemish. It just means that he is blameless and that no one can bring a charge against him because whenever Paul sins or does wrong, he recognizes it, he confesses it, and he makes amends for it. And therefore, Paul is blameless. He's not guilty of the things they're charging him of. And in his life in general, he has kept a short list of sin in his life by confessing them and making things right whenever sin does enter into his life. To be blameless means that you and I can have an unquestionable integrity. So when Paul says, I have a clear conscience toward both God and man, it means that he is a man of integrity. Who he says he is, he is. Who he is in, uh, in public, he's in the same way in private as well. Paul could say that he was blameless because he wasn't guilty of any of these charges. He wasn't a plague. He wasn't uh, causing problems wherever he went, but rather he was making a positive impact wherever he went as he preached Christ to those around him. He didn't stir up riots, but instead people rioted against him. Whenever there were riots in the cities that he was in, it was not because of him, but because of resistance to what he was doing. So he could say, hey, I'm blameless when it comes to that. He didn't defile the temple because he followed the religious customs and he worshiped God there. Paul had the moral, theological, and biblical high ground. Just like Paul was able to say he was blameless you and I that are followers of Jesus, if we call Jesus our Lord and Savior, we can and we should be seeking to be people of integrity, people with blameless character. You may feel like, Alan, there's no way. You just said blameless. You said integrity. Like, I can't live up to that expectation. The good news is you're right, you can't. You can't live a blameless life. You can't have a blameless character unless you're empowered by the Holy Spirit to do so. Those of us that are followers of Jesus can only live a blameless life before God and people whenever we are following Jesus and His Holy Spirit in our lives. Think about Jesus. Was Jesus blameless? Absolutely yes. Let's take it a step further. Not only was Jesus blameless, Jesus was without blemish, without flaw, without sin. You see, Jesus had a perfect blamelessness about him. And if you have trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, Scripture tells us that Jesus' perfection, his righteousness has been placed on top of us, not because of who we are, but because of our trust in him. And so the only way that you and I can live a blameless life is if we allow Christ to be at work in our lives. We're to live lives of sanctification, seeking to become more and more like Jesus every day. Whenever I get to the end of a section, as you know, I like to ask a question or two. At each section today, I'm going to ask two questions that are going to be on the screen. I'd like you to jot them down, think about them, and reflect on them. If it's a yes-no question, then let's make it more than a yes-no and kind of do something with it. And that is, the first one is this. What is keeping you from being able to confess, like Paul did, that you have a clear conscience toward both God and man? Like if you had walked in and you said, and I were to say, hey, can you say before people that you have a clear conscience? You're like, no, I've got a few things in my life. Like identify them. What is it that's keeping you, prohibiting you from being able to truthfully say, like Paul, that you have a clear conscience before both God and man? And then don't just identify it. 
ask yourself the next question, what is God calling me to do about it? Again, it's not me and my own strength, it's the Holy Spirit at work within me. But don't just say, the reason I don't have a clear conscience before God and man is because I've got this sin issue, I've got this addiction, I've got this rebelliousness, I've got this unforgiveness, I've got this bitterness, I've got this issue in my life. Don't just give the answer and walk away and go, that's why I can't. But rather, now what is God calling you to do? To repent of that sin, to turn from that sin, to trust in the Holy Spirit, to cleanse you of that sin. The second way in these verses that we can have a clear conscience before God and man, not only have a blameless character, but also we need to have orthodox beliefs. Orthodox beliefs. And you're like, what do you mean by that? I'm glad you asked me that. Verses 14 and 15 point to this. Orthodox simply means... Something along the lines of this. Orthodox beliefs are correct beliefs. And as it comes to our Christian faith, they are the accepted views that have been among the community of faith throughout the years. Like the collection of God's people have come to the conclusion that certain doctrinal truths of God's word are foundational in nature and we can't compromise on that. And so we are to have true orthodox views about who God is and how we're to live our lives. Paul says, guys, verses 14 and 15, guys, I haven't abandoned orthodox beliefs. I haven't abandoned the God that we've worshipped, the God that our ancestors worshipped. Rather, I'm worshipping him more fully because I'm understanding that what's in the Old Testament, he wouldn't have called it that, but what's in the Old Testament is true, but it's only true as it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so because of that, I am fully following the prophets, I'm fully following the law as I follow Jesus Christ in my life. He's not He's not compromised any of the truths that he had been raised with. Rather, he is seeing it fully lived out in the life of Jesus and in his life. You see, he said, Jewish people have believed in the resurrection. He said, guys, I'm just believing in the resurrection, which our, our family has always believed in. But this resurrection I believe in is ultimately the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Paul knew that he was on trial for preaching Jesus faithfully. He knew that. He was, he was on trial because he believed that Jesus was crucified for our sins, was buried, and was resurrected. And so as Paul faithfully followed the Scripture, he could say he had a clear conscience before God because he was following that Scripture. I said that we should have an orthodox belief. We need to take it a step further than just simply having orthodox belief. We should have what is sometimes referred to as orthopraxy. Ortho, P-R-A-X-Y. Orthopraxy simply means right actions or right practice in other words it's one thing to know the truth of god's word which we must it's another thing then to apply it and live it out in our lives james says don't just simply be hearers of the word but be doers of the word and so paul's able to say that he has a clear conscience before god and man because he believes the biblical truths about who god is who jesus christ is what christ has done on our behalf and who he is and how he needs to live his life and he's doing that very thing so whenever it comes to our lives, if we want to have a clear conscience before God and others, then we should believe God's word and live it out. Jesus says that the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is just like it, love your neighbor as yourself, because all of the law, all of the prophets hinge on these things. If we love God, then we will follow his word. If we love God, we will also love man, and we will love them and live accordingly. Therefore, he could have a clear conscience before God because he had a proper belief and practice of those beliefs. So that being said, here are the two questions I would ask you to ask of yourself. Number one is this. 
Do your beliefs match the clear teaching of God's Word? Do your beliefs match the clear teaching of God's Word? In our day and age, we like to dismiss the truths of God's Word. We like to say, this doesn't apply to my life anymore. This isn't relevant. This is dusty. This is out of, out of date. This is old-fashioned. No, I'm asking you, are you believing the true statements and teaching of God's Word? We're called to believe that this Word is true. In our class, uh, equipment class on Sunday mornings, last week or the week before, we talked about how God's Word is infallible and inerrant. It has no error in it, and it is true, and it is right, and it is pure, and it is useful for teaching and rebuking and correcting and living our lives. Do you have a right belief about God's Word? You're like, Alan, I don't even know where to start. Well, I've got some good news. Lots of places to start in no particular order. You can read God's Word, listen to God's Word, study it. You can be a part of a hope group where you'll study God's Word. You can be a part of an equipping class which studies God's Word. You could jump in and be a part of a D group where guys, uh, if you're a guy, you'd have guys in your group, ladies, you'd have ladies in your group, where you can look at God's Word. We need to understand the clear teaching of God's Word. Now, I will say this. In the class we're taking on Christian beliefs, I love the fact that it said that God's Word is clear, but not always is it clearly understandable. And what we mean by that is, you might open the book of Revelation, you're like, oh my goodness, I don't know what that means. Like, I don't know what a dragon with horns and mouth, a tongue sticking out and fire and sword. I don't understand that. And then you're like, oh, but I, I do like, like um, Matthew chapter 1, because I can kind of understand it. It's the genealogy of Christ. And then he was born to Mary and Joseph. That's easy to understand. The reality is this, all of God's word is clear, but we need the Holy Spirit to help us interpret his word, and we need good study uh, tools to study it properly. It's another sermon for another day, but I'd love to chat with you. I see Katie Moody shaking her head over there. If you're a lady and you want to know how to study God's word, go talk to Katie. She'll, she'll help you. And, and she can help guys too, but if you're a lady, go see Katie. She's phenomenal in that regard. Secondly, what steps are you taking to better understand and live out orthodox beliefs? So it's one thing to say, I believe that God's word is true. Preach the gospel. And when I say preach, I don't mean that you have to be a pastor or a preacher or a missionary or a Bible study leader. I'm saying proclaim, declare, share, express the truth of the gospel. We see that in verses 24 and 25 when Paul interacted with Felix and Drusilla. That's a name. Felix and Drusilla. As he boldly, straightforwardly did not sugarcoat the gospel, he preached it boldly to those folks here stood paul can you imagine being paul he stood in the presence of the most powerful person in all of judea the governor he's on trial for preaching the gospel of jesus christ and when paul stands before felix and his wife he doesn't go hey guys I'd like to get out of jail. No, he goes, hey guys, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about salvation. Let me preach the gospel to you. The very thing that had him under arrest, he boldly, clearly preached the need for Priscilla, sorry, for Priscilla, she would need faith too, but Drusilla and Felix to have faith in Christ. Here are three words that he shares in verses 24 and 25. Uh, Actually, 25. Righteousness, self-control, and judgment. He said, guys, here's the deal. God is a holy, righteous God. 
You are a sinner. You cannot control your actions. You are living in rebellion against a holy, righteous God. And because of that, you deserve the coming judgment, which says that you will be forever, eternally separated from this holy, perfect, righteous God. But the good news is that you can have faith in Jesus Christ, that God sent his son Jesus to come and live a perfect life and die for your sins. That Jesus is the righteousness of of, of God because he did not sin and yet he willingly laid down his life as a sacrifice or a substitute on your behalf. He said, Paul, uh, Paul said, Felix and Drusilla, if you trust in Jesus as your Savior, you can experience the righteousness of God being placed upon you. And you don't have to try to do things on your own anymore, but rather you can live out your faith as a follower of Jesus in self-control as the Holy Spirit guides you and you can have confidence at the coming judgment that you are one of the just and not the unjust. You're like, Alan, he didn't say that. I don't know what he said, but I can guarantee you he preached something like that because he boldly preached the gospel pointing to righteousness and the need of it and our lack thereof outside of Jesus Christ. The self-control here, let me tell you this. Drusilla is on her second marriage. Felix is on his third marriage. And they have shown anything but self-control, not only in their marriage, but in the choices they've made in life. And Paul boldly stands up and says, you need self-control, but the only way you can have that is by having the righteousness of Christ. And then he says, guys, there's a judgment coming, and you can either choose to follow Jesus or you can choose to reject him. You and I are called to do the same thing. You and I are called to boldly proclaim and share the gospel. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, then your job, your task, your mission, your responsibility is to go to the ends of the earth to point others to the hope that they likewise can find in Jesus. That there is a lostness of man and woman apart from Christ. That God has moral demands that we cannot meet. That we can be saved by grace through faith alone, not works of ourselves that we would boast in it, but rather by the goodness of God. But then out of our salvation that there's a lifestyle of obedience and faithfulness and works that come as a result of salvation, not causing salvation. So here's my questions for you. Two on the screen. Number one, are you taking advantage of every opportunity in your life to share the gospel with others? To a T, if we were honest, all of us would have to say no. I'm not judging any of us. I'm just saying we do not have a perfect record of preaching the gospel every single time. But I'm wanting to reflect how am I showing faithfulness or lack thereof? And because of that, what steps is God calling you to take? so that you can increase in both your understanding of the gospel and the proclamation of it. If you don't understand the gospel, is it easy to proclaim it? No. If you're a follower of Jesus, but you don't, can't quite wrap your brain around the gospel, start there. Go to 1 Corinthians, I'm, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, right? 1 Corinthians 15 talks about the gospel. Go somewhere in Scripture, read what the gospel clearly is, so that you can begin to have confidence in your understanding. The gospel, in a nutshell, could be expressed in a lot of different ways, but here it is. I can't do anything to earn God's favor. I can't do anything to maintain God's favor. It's not on me. It's on what he's done on my, my behalf. Trust in him for salvation at the beginning. Trust in him all along as you live out your, your walk with Christ. We need to understand the gospel so that we can then go faithfully proclaim it to others. I want to finish up our time by looking at what happens after Verses 24 and 25. Look down, well actually it is in 25, the tail end of 25. 
So we see in the front part of 25 that Paul was faithful to boldly preach the gospel. And then we see in the second half, Felix was alarmed. Felix was scared. Felix was fearful. Felix was whatever word there. And he said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. We have no record of Felix ever turning to Jesus in faith. Most likely he did not. You see, Felix was presented a moment for him to hear the gospel, to hear his need to trust in a righteous, holy God for forgiveness of his sins. And Felix put off that decision and said, get out of my presence. I don't want to hear it any longer. Some of you, for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, you've been exposed to some degree of the gospel. Some of you maybe every week in church. Maybe some of you on Christmas and Easter only. Maybe some of you only when it came to dedication time of kids or whatever. You've, you've heard the gospel. You were a part of Awana growing up as a kid. You went to VBS. You, you've, you've turned on a Billy Graham. Well, he's not alive anymore, but you maybe back in the day watched Billy Graham crusade. You did something. You were exposed to the gospel and you've heard it. You've heard it so many times and you're yawning at it. You've never accepted the fact that that's the only way for salvation and some of you some of you in this room and watching online you're like Felix and you are putting off a decision for Christ and you're not guaranteed that next opportunity I'm not trying to scare you I'm not trying to do anything like that I'm just saying a, a judgment's coming and have you trusted in Jesus as your savior or are you rejecting him but turning him away don't be like Felix don't be hardened by your sin, but take immediate action. If the Lord is bringing conviction to you today, if he's speaking to you today, respond. If you're already a follower of Jesus and he's speaking to you, go preach the gospel. Don't put it off. Don't say, I'll think about it next week. Say yes now. Today is the day for salvation. Today is the day for obedience. Instead, I would encourage you, not that he's perfect, but I would encourage you to be like Paul. Paul was striving to go to great lengths in order that he might have a clear conscience before both God and people, and he did that by having a blameless character to him, by, by, um, by having a blameless character to him, by having orthodox beliefs, and by boldly preaching the gospel. And my question is, where is God calling you to take a step of obedience today? In just a moment, I'm going to pray for us. At the end of the prayer, we're going to have a couple of response songs, and you can respond in various ways, but one of the ways you can respond is by turning in a, a, uh, your connection card or an offering envelope. If you've got those, you can turn those in when the offering plates are passed in the second song in just a moment. But in either the first or the second song, if you'd like to pray at your seat, if you'd like to pray at the altar, if you'd like to come and pray with me, if you'd like to grab somebody to come down here and pray with you, if you'd like to sit down and pray at your seat, or you need to text someone about something pertaining to this passage and to what God's doing in your life, if you need to take an action of obedience, take that action today. Do not be like Felix. Do not put it off, but say yes today. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Let's pray. Father, I know right now I'm tired, and maybe everybody's tired of hearing me talk a million miles an hour. But God, I pray that in the midst of my talking fast, in the midst of us covering a lot of material, in the midst of maybe me stumbling over my words, that your Holy Spirit would clearly communicate today. Father, I pray that just like apparently Felix was convicted of a need to take a step of obedience, yet he chose to do otherwise. 
God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be whispering or shouting to us to take steps of action based on the gospel that we cannot do it in and of ourselves, but only because of him, because of you, and that we would take steps of obedience out of that very truth. God, I pray that we would not leave this place unchanged. There's nothing holy about this place other than the fact that it is set apart for worshiping, yes, but there's nothing sacred or special about this place other than your people have chosen to declare this place a place together to worship. And so, God, I pray that we would not just make a decision that we would say yes to you in this room and then walk out and live differently, but that instead we would walk out living out the things we proclaimed in here. Father, have your way this morning. Break us where we need to be broken. Convict us where we need to be convicted. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. Father, in your graciousness, in your sovereignty, would you have your way this morning? Would we sense your presence because you are here? And then would you push us out? to go live the way that you've called us to live so that we might have a clear conscience before you and before others as we're striving to follow you closely. And may you use our church family to walk alongside and encourage each other through the process. It's in the powerful name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us if you're able to do so? We're going to sing together. I'll be available at the front if you'd like to come and pray with me. You let God do business with you and say yes to him this morning. Let's worship family.